Greetings, listeners, and welcome to the 50th episode of Pairing, a podcast where we pair wine with art and pop culture. I am your host, Emma Scherzarko, and I couldn't be happier to have for this milestone episode, the last, at least for now, in our Harry Potter and New World Wine series. I was joined by my good friend Sarah Wolf to discuss the last and most epic of the Harry Potter novels, The Deathly Hallows, as well as the last of the major New World wine regions, California. Sarah is possibly the most qualified guest we've ever had for this Harry Potter series because, I'm sorry guys, Kiki is in the studio and she's not super quiet, so she's probably going to knock something over while I record this intro. And there's just nothing to be done about it. But anyway, as I was saying, while Sarah's not out saving the planet, she has hosted a Harry Potter book club, as we'll talk about, and created many incredible Harry Potter-themed games. And not to bribe you or anything, but she has given me permission to post some of her Harry Potter Mad Libs, trivia, and other games on our Patreon. So if you are not yet a patron, now is the time to come check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash pairingpodcast. I'm sorry, Kiki's about to just destroy my whole setup here. She's about to knock absolutely everything over. Like I said, nothing we can do about it. But anyway, I promise you, we are all going to be throwing Harry Potter parties now, and I hope that you get to drink some of the wines we've recommended throughout this series with your friends. I really hope you've all enjoyed this Harry Potter and New World wine series. I truly feel like it's a culmination of my childhood meeting my adulthood, and I hope that you feel the same way, or that you learned some things, or it was at least still fun to hear some people talk about Harry Potter for a while. I couldn't be happier with all the guests we had on and with the discussions we had. We will soon be launching our next nerdy series about yet another important franchise that I am super stoked for, so get excited. Kiki's very excited. She's rubbing up on everything. For those of you who don't realize this, Kiki is my cat. And speaking of the Patreon, thank you to our newest patron, Jacob Penfold, who is also now a certified producer-level patron, along with Emma Cohen, Rena Sarame, Zoo Yorker, and Allison Turi, who, like Neville, go on heroic journeys but don't need to hog all the attention. And to our advanced producer, Mara Zobrist, who is as unbelievably selfless as Hermione Granger, the one and only. And to our master patron, Michael Beck, who deserves even more praise than Harry at the end of this novel. In addition to those Harry Potter goodies from Sarah, we are also now only $18 away from meeting our next goal. I know that not everyone can make a monetary contribution to the show, but if you've been thinking about it and you would like to give us a try, head on over to patreon.com slash pairingpodcast and see what kinds of rewards we have on there from $1 and up. Last but not least... Thank you for listening. I can't believe that we've hit 50 episodes, and I can't wait to do 50 more. Oh my god, Kiki's about to jump on my lap. Nope. This has only been made possible by each and every single one of you, so thank you so much. All I ask is that if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. I know that there are tons of wine-drinking, Harry Potter-loving people out there who haven't listened to the show, so I would love for them to listen to this episode and get introduced to pairing that way. But right now, without further ado from me or Kiki, here is episode 50, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows with Sarah Wolf.
Well, I am so excited because I feel like this is the perfect culmination of our Harry Potter and New World wine series because I have with me one of my best friends in the world, friends since college, Sarah Wolf, who I saw both of the, the seventh and eighth movies with, which is part of why I wanted to have you um, on on this episode, I'm Sarah. I'm so thrilled so, to be here. I can't really think of a better way to spend an evening than, like, talking about right? Harry Potter with my friend while drinking wine. Like, it, it's, right? like that's, it's kind of the perfect evening. <laughs> isn't that? And that's the idea behind pairing, is that, you know, <laughs> that, you know, you should spend your evenings reading good books or talking about good books with your friends drinking wine. Cause it's there's, the perfect there's situation. Literally nothing better than that. <laughs> You're doing it right. Yes, sweet. Um, <laughs> so I'm gonna I I'm gonna grab my my copy of Deathly Hollows here because, well, I guess to start off. So I if if you don't mind, Sarah, I'm just gonna do a little recap because oh, yes. we've been doing this this Harry Potter and New World wine series. I the first one I recorded with Emma, the Sorcerer's Stone episode, Emma Cohen, who grew up like 10 minutes from Sarah, though they yes. didn't know each other. Yes, Emma connection. <laughs> yes. They, so, so we recorded that back in April of last year. So I've been recording these episodes for like a year and a half or more um, yeah. or something, something like that. And so the idea behind this series was that we were going to pair each book with a different major New World wine series. So for, or New World wine region, I should say. I, I've i gotten to the point in my life where like I refer to chapters as episodes and, right. uh, and you know, and regions of the world. Genres. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's it all, all overlaps. <laughs> it all overlaps. It's all just in my, in a whole little melding pot in my brain. Um, but so, okay, so Sorcerer's Stone was Chile. Right. The Chamber of Secrets was New Zealand. Yes. Prisoner of Azkaban was South Africa. Goblet of Fire was Australia. Order of the Phoenix was Argentina. Half-Blood Prince was the Pacific Northwest of the United States. And now we're going to talk about the last and possibly the greatest of the New World wine regions, depending on who you talk to. I don't want to offend oh, You're about anybody. to make some serious I know, I know, I know. <laughs> Uh, but we're going to talk about California uh, yes. with Deathly Hollows. Yes. Which, Sarah, you also, you lived in San Francisco for many years. and so... I, I did do that. And I did go to my share of wineries in the Napa and Good. Sonoma regions. Oh, fabulous. So you are familiar with. Well, um, you know how wine tours go. So I think oh, familiar yes. is probably a yes. strong word. <laughs> well, but you, but you know, I mean, going to Napa is like. A total experience, and that's part of what yes. I want to talk about in terms of, of this book. Um, but I felt like California was the right choice to pair with Deathly Hollows for a couple reasons. Um, first reason is that this book is fucking epic, and yeah. it is the most epic of the seven. Uh, in because I've been rereading it, re-listening to it, rewatching the yeah. movies, and I and I. Just like, and I feel like you probably had this experience, Sarah. I feel like most people our age who grew up with the books, we've read most of the earlier books so many times. But every this single book, time before the book, ex- before exactly. the new one would come out, yeah, all, all exactly. But then this one came out, and then there was nothing to come after it. And so mm. I've reread the series a couple times, but I think I've only read this one 
two or three times and not yeah. in a long time. I, I gave away this book in uh, sometime in college to a friend. Really? That, actually, the summer that we saw the final movie oh together, my gosh. I gave it away to my friend who I was doing that internship with and oh. had totally forgotten where or who I gave it to. And I think mm-hmm. I read it. I, I know I read it once since then in San Francisco because I hosted a Harry Potter book club in case we needed credence as to why I'm here and can speak about Harry Potter. I, I mean, Sarah is probably the most qualified guest we've ever had on this show. <laughs> anyway, that's a whole other story. I can share all of my games and puzzles from yes. <laughs> yes. another time. Yes, I want to hear all about it. <laughs> but anyway, she, she emailed me because she was moving maybe like four months ago and said, I really want to mail you your book back. Uh, oh I've had God. it for all these years. And I said, I mean, I was like blown away that I, cause wow. I had totally forgotten and she mailed it back to me. And so I, I now have my original Deathly Hollows book, but I haven't had that's, it for like eight years. That's amazing. Oh yeah. my God. <laughs> well, what a, what a perfect moment to, to have it again and be talking seriously, about it again. Seriously. Right? It's all coming together. <laughs> Absolutely. And so, but beyond, beyond that, and, and also in rereading it recently, what I would say is when I first read it, there were a lot of things that really bothered me about this book. Mm-hmm. Um, I think because it was such a departure in format yeah. um, from the other six, and that upset me when I was, you know, eight. I think I was 18, or no, yeah. I was 17 when it came out. I was about yep. to turn 18. And I had grown up with Harry, you know, and I was really upset by the fact that they weren't, that the book didn't take place primarily at Hogwarts. I was like, Mm -hmm. whoa, you can't do this to me now, man. Like, I'm about to go to college. I know, I know. In in retrospect, in rereading it, that bothers me less now. Yeah, because we're not kids anymore either. Because we're not kids anymore either, and I understand that that's how the world works sometimes. Like, sometimes you have to give up your last year at Hogwarts to, you know, fight Nazis. Sometimes you gotta fight the bad guys and you can't go have magic lessons. Yeah. (laughs) And that's the ultimate lesson from this book. Correct. But just as there are things that bother me, there are equal things that I think are amazing about this book. Yeah. And really, oh, I have a cat crying at the door. I think I gotta let her in. Special guest. Kiki or Queen? It's Queen. It's the studio studio manager. Of course. Yes, come on in. Yeah, you're good. I know. (laughs) Uh, uh, Such quality content she gives to parents. (laughs) Only the best. (laughs) Only the best. Strong opinions, but they're worth it. (laughs) Oh, so, so many opinions. So many opinions. Oh my god. You should read her op-ed pieces. <laughs> oh, I, I wouldn't dare. <laughs> but anyway, so so just as there are things that that bother me, there are things that I love about this book, and yeah. I feel the same way about California. Yeah. So just uh, California as a wine region, I should say, not California as a state as a whole. I love California. Um, oh yeah, yeah. But can I also say like it feels like California, having lived there and spent some time in yeah. the wine region, like also gets like a lot of hype and there was so much hype yes. for this last book and and as your series thus far has taught all of us there are so many other incredible wine regions out there yes and california doesn't necessarily deserve knowing nothing about wine but doesn't necessarily deserve all of the hype that it gets when there are so many amazing other places hundred percent hundred percent and and also part of what i want to talk about with california is that um like within california there are 
many, many subregions. And so, you know, we mentioned Napa and Sonoma. Those are the main regions that get the most attention when you talk about California wine. Yeah. But I wanted to talk about a couple other regions as well that are less known that I think are as good or better in some ways that just don't get the hype. Um, yeah. But yes, the hype is definitely part of it. The 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 prestige kind of aspect to it. Yeah, yeah. We'll we'll get into it, but I I do want to start out talking about this book. It's a lot. It's a lot, and and so I don't know if you if you felt this, but in my rereading of it, which I I'm sort of like two thirds of the way through the book listening mm-hmm. to Jim Dale because I've never listened to the Jim Dale audiobook of it so I was you like haven't well I've listened to the Jim Dale of all the other ones but you not this one this one yeah wow. so so I'm I was doing that I know oh my god I love Jim Dale I still <laughs> I'm gonna amazing. I'm gonna make a confession I have not listened to the Stephen Fry audiobooks either I've listened to some of them and I haven't listened to all of them and I yeah. love Stephen Fry and so when I found yeah. out that he had them I was so excited and there and Jim Nail really just captures the magic of Harry Potter in a way that Stephen Fry doesn't quite get that's that's what I feel and uh, because I also adore Stephen Fry yeah um and I've and I've heard different differing opinions certain people prefer the Stephen Fry to the Jim Dale but yeah. I feel like Jim Dale because they were coming out like I remember having like the Jim Dale books on tape along with right, back right. when there were books on tape, like right. actual tape. Right, um, right, right. <laughs> I have such a clear visual of what that looked like in my head. Right, right. <laughs> um, and yep. so. Yeah, he was the original narrator. He brought, yeah, he brought it to and, life before the movies did. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And so it felt like that felt like as much a part of the Harry Potter world as the movies did. I will say, though. Yeah. This is a bit of a tangent, but there's an incredible Paley Center interview with Stephen Fry mm. talking about his experience narrating the books. And mm. he said that I think it was in the third book and he was still I can't remember the exact timeline of when his came out, but he was still narrating them when when while they were being written. OK, so he, they, he did start at some point while they were still being written and he was narr- and he was, I think, working on the third book. And there was a phrase, um, Harry pocketed it. Yes, and, and have you heard this story? I have heard this story, but please tell it. <laughs> and Stephen Fry stumbled over this phrase for like 25 takes or something. You know, he'd been doing, yep. he's a professional. He's yep. he'd been totally fine and he and he could not get this phrase. And so he they skipped over it. They went on. He went yep. home and he called J.K. Rowling and was like, can yep. I please say something else? Can I say he put it in his pocket? And yep. she just said, no. And then, yep. <laughs> and then hung up. And he went back and he eventually got it. And yeah. he says, I swear to God that on purpose, the wor- the phrase he pocketed it appeared in every subsequent book. <laughs> <laughs> so if you look, as you the next time you're reading through the series, look oh for my the gosh. phrase, he pocketed it. <laughs> he pocketed it. Um, I, can, I can very much relate having just finished recording my first audiobook, my first full audiobook, which hopefully will yes. be released to the world soon. I can't wait. There were certain things that I just like like the weirdest phrases that I yeah. could not say. And I think and that part of it is like you you get it yeah, you get into your head and you're like, yeah. Oh my God, why am I having so much trouble saying these words that I wouldn't right. have trouble saying normally? Right. Right. And right. uh so I, I very much relate to that. Um, yeah. but that's 
Uh, that's an amazing story. I love that story. Yeah. yeah. But yes, so so I was in re-listening to the books. I really do feel like this book could even be split into three main parts. Mm-hmm. When the first part being kind of the the lead up to until until Bill and Fleur's wedding, and yeah. when Harry, Ron, and Hermione have to split off and start yeah. doing their adventure. Yeah. Then I think around the time that they are are going back to Hogwarts, maybe a little bit before, um, right. sort of around where the second movie starts. Right, around where they split, yep, yep, yeah. after, Dobby, after Dobby's death. Yes, um, yeah. because, oh my God, there is so much in, this, in the last third of yeah. this book that yeah. in my mind I remembered it, like that being the majority of the book. And right. then in rereading it, I was like, Oh my God, she puts so much into these like five like chapters. Pages. Yeah, that's actually even how I feel when. I, so what I did in preparation for this, I read yes. through the seventh book and then yeah. read backwards through the entire. I series, love that. I love which I'd that. I've never done before. I've never <laughs> done it, that either. It was a, a, a really cool experience because, uh, and it's been yeah. fun listening to your other episodes because oh, well, you know, thank people you. have very insightful comments that I would have never thought about. Sure. But, um, as as I was like listening to them and then reading them backwards, the comments about like how she portrays aging and how the stories get more complicated yeah. and all those things, I was just like really experiencing that very very in a very real way. And yeah. I got to the first book and I was amazed at just how fast it went because yeah. the story fills up. It feels like the story fills up just as much space as the seventh mm. book in my mind. Yeah, mm-hmm. but there, she manages to like she builds the entire world in that first book and like the first yeah. half I mean it's, it's a half a book before he, Harry even gets to Hogwarts and yeah. so it's just she does have this incredible talent of like making really dense adventure if there's like mm-hmm. I don't know if there's a better word for that but like packing a lot into into her like segments of the story no I think that's a really good way to put it um and a really great great way to describe it and I do think we don't give I think like in retrospect like we give jk rowling a little bit more of a hard time than she deserves because she did a well i mean there's all sorts of ways that we can give jk rowling a hard time but (laughs) she did she did a tremendous job at world building and yes her writing like the actual quality of the like the prose does improve like exponentially over the course of the books but even in that first book what she did to create that world and the magic yeah. of that world. It really is. It, it, and it's it, like that, that first book, I've probably read it 20 times, you know, <laughs> and it's so iconic. It's so drilled into my mind. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and it, and so it's nice coming back to this book, which is, is very much, you know, like also part of my growing up experience, but is, is less like, totally drilled into my mind and so there's many things in this book that I just did not remember um Mm -hmm. or or were different from how I remembered um and and just like fun little tidbits and one thing I was noticing while listening to it I was like there's so much sexual innuendo in this book I I mean I don't like my favorite my the one I wrote down I was like at one point when Ron gives Harry like the book about like how to how to win a witch (laughs) in in 12 steps or something and he's like and you'd be surprised it's not all wand work it's like (laughs) what what (laughs) <laughs> Ron is really 
literally so dopey in like ninety percent of this book. It's, I it's like know. I mean, also the also the sixth book. Like he get, he's just he goes through a rough time in like most of these two books. He does, and <laughs> also one of one of the things that I feel is that there. Okay, there is a couple different like perspectives that I want to get. You know, in the fan fiction or whatever version mm-hmm. of this story. Mm-hmm. Um, the primary one is I want this book or this timeline from Neville Longbottom's perspective oh because God, yes right I, like yeah. I want to know what it's like to be at Hogwarts under yeah. like leading the rebellion literally yeah. yeah literally yeah and I want that book so much yeah and um and I've talked about on this podcast before and I know that uh Shubes on Potterless who was our guest on the last ep- the last mm-hmm. Harry Potter episode he talks about a lot how we want the Hermione perspective which yeah. I absolutely want but I'm also really interested in the Ron perspective yeah because yeah. because we give Ron a hard time as well because Ron makes a lot of bad choices yeah he's he's pretty like privileged just like a kind of textbook oh. like Totally, he's, you know, white male wizarding family. Like he's had a he's had a pretty good life and thinks he's had a hard life in a lot of Absolutely. ways. Absolutely. Well, being you know, said, he... though, it's really hard to be friends with Harry. <laughs> yeah, and to just be expected to like put your life on the line constantly, yeah. and, and and, and I... play second fiddle constantly. Yeah, and so I really appreciated that in in listening to the book again and and like the part where he you know leaves them because he yeah. uh just can't take it anymore and and obviously part of that is because of the locket and everything which I want to talk about as well mm-hmm. but uh but but for the first time I kind of like I really sympathize with Ron because yeah. I feel yeah. like I have now that I'm older in my life have often made selfish decisions because a lot of things, like a lot of really unfair things were asked of me. And maybe, maybe I didn't necessarily make the right choice in that moment. Right. But in retrospect, I'm not going to beat myself up for that because I mean, obviously nothing to this extent, but, (laughs) but, but, you know, like if we're thinking about Harry Potter more as a metaphor for like growing up, Yes, um, definitely. So anyway, so I just I just want to give Ron his due, and yeah, yeah, no, I, <laughs> I I totally agree, and and he does like come around in a way that's like a little unexpected for him. Like he 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 does more than than you think he's going to about absolutely. The end of this book. And, and oh that's, my gosh, I, it would he, be cool to see that transition first first person. Yes, it would be it would be cool to you know we get we get his kind of exposition about what happens when he leaves, but it would right. be cool to like get it from his perspective, get the lead up and everything. Right. That being said, though, Hermione has never been more badass than she is, particularly oh in that first third of this book. Like, yeah, she is just unbelievable and gets zero credit for it from the boys. <laughs> it is insane how much she yeah. does. And like you, how... guys, you guys were talking about in the last episode, like she did, yeah. she's, she, that's not a huge book for her. She's, she's not, doesn't have like a crazy arc, but in this one, it's like from the get go. Yeah. She, she like, they would be so dead without her. It is a million times, a million times. They would be so dead without her. Yeah. 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 And just like having that book and like, ha- or that bag and having oh everything packed in that bag and just ready to go. And, and yeah. like thinking of scenarios and contingencies 
that just no offense, but dumb teenage boys are right. not gonna think about. And and, and, and memory washing her parents, like oh making her God. parents forget about her. That oh gets like glossed over in the totally, book. Totally, totally glossed over. It's like a sentence in the book. Yeah. And she yeah. does not make a big deal about it. Yep. And that's one thing I actually liked about the movie. Totally. They took that moment. They did, and that that's the opening of the movie is Hermione giving up her parents basically yeah. saving her parents but yeah. but like giving up her whole life it totally. that's that's an insane thing to contemplate yeah. as as a 17 year old <laughs> oh my god it, it's just it's like the most heartbreaking thing to watch her do that knowing like she's probably she assumes she's gonna die yeah and like she herself has i mean she's just yeah she's just giving up She's giving up everything. She's giving up school. Like, Hogwarts is also her family and, like, her yeah. thing that she, like, loves the most. It's just, it's just, it's mind-boggling. And she just never, like, doesn't blink. Doesn't <laughs> blink at, or doesn't balk at making right. that decision. Ugh. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. She's badass. Yes. So, this is going to lead me, I'm going to, I'm going to make a little segue to a little wine talk for a moment. Yeah. Um, just talking about California. There's there's so much to talk about in California, um, and I'm not going to talk about all of it, but I do want to, talking about Ron and Hermione, um, as, as I've tried to do and have done to varying degrees of success in the Harry Potter episodes, I wanted to pair certain grapes with, uh, with the, the three heroes. Yeah. And in this book, so these are grapes that I think I've paired with them before or paired with other people before but specifically talking about in california um ron has got to be merlot because Mm. merlot gets such a bad rap and california merlot specifically yeah mostly because of the movie sideways not entirely because of reality but but merlot is one of those grapes that like when it's not good it's really not good but it can be it can be great. It can be wonderful. And so I feel like Ron, you know, especially in this book, he probably hits the lowest that he's ever hit in this right. book. But then he comes back and is kind of the best he's ever been. Right, um, right. And, I, and so I felt like California Merlot is a good grape for, for Ron in this book. Yep. Uh, just running the gamut. Um, okay, so that's, that's what I feel like is right for Ron in this book. Yeah, totally agree. And then for Hermione... Even though I gave her this grape in last book, um, it's different because the region is different. Um, mm-hmm. But she's definitely Pinot Noir in this book. Yeah. Because um, California Pinot Noir is very different from Oregon Pinot Noir, which I, I talked about last last episode. In this book, so, so California Pinot Noir, depending on where it's coming from, is a lot more full-bodied and kind of powerful mm-hmm. than Pinot Noir from Oregon, which is fabulous very gorgeous fitting. wine yeah but very light very thin elegant quote-unquote feminine um but california pinot noir tends to have a lot more body and like backbone to it and yeah. my favorite region my favorite region for pinot noir in california is the russian river valley which is part of sonoma kind of just like south of napa and the the pinot noirs from this region are just like 
velvety and mm-hmm. like gorgeous, gorgeous wines. Um, and but like have some real substance and power to them while being like graceful and elegant at the same time. And I feel like that is yeah. the perfect grape for Hermione because she's so powerful, but she does everything with such grace. And, and so fitting to have that, like, she was a Pinot Noir last book, but now she's, like, a stronger ex- Pinot Noir. Exactly. <laughs> she, has, she has migrated to another region. <laughs> she's gone south. <laughs> she's gone south. Um, but in a I good way. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No. <laughs> and then for Harry, I have to give him California Cabernet Sauvignon, which mm-hmm. I've given I've given Cab before, I think, to to both Harry and Ron at various points, but did want to talk about Cab from California because it really is one of the best wines in the world. And it's not necessarily my favorite, so to speak, but Cabernet Sauvignons from Napa truly are spectacular, spectacular wines. They are also often, as we were talking about, overhyped, um, mm-hmm. which I feel like is also something that Harry has to deal with constantly, are pe- yep. is people overhyping him and right. just not letting him relax. But so some of my favorite Napa cabs come from wineries that are a little bit less known. And I did mm-hmm. want to recommend specifically this one winery called Larkmead, which for my money is the best producer of or one of the best producers of Cabernet Sauvignon in Napa and it's really hard to find them and they're really expensive but if you are in Napa it is 100% worth going to the winery and tasting these wines because that is what Napa Cab is and to me what Napa Cabernet is is it has this like chocolatey texture or chocolate mm. chocolatey flavor, almost texture to it as well, mm-hmm. um, while being super dry and having like beautiful herbal notes and just like really, really beautiful like tartness and richness and just all that tannin, oak, all everything in balance. When yeah. it's all in balance, it's perfect. It's beautiful. And I feel yeah. like that that final moment when Harry accepts his fate and then yeah. has the the King's Cross moment with mm-hmm. Dumbledore and then comes back and is just totally in in power. Yeah. That is Harry at his best. Yeah. And that is Napa Cab at its best. Yeah. That being said, Napa Cab is also super it's a super saturated market and there is a lot of Napa Cab out there that is not as great and um and I don't enjoy as much and it can be like really oaky and really cheap and or just like just not not like really kind of what's the word cloying almost yeah and so would you say like camping napa cab not so good (laughs) exactly exactly so for the camping chapters Look at our camping Napa cabs and our battle Napa cabs. They're yeah, very it, different. <laughs> very different. Very different. But yes, so that would be my my breakdown of uh, of yeah. our three heroes for Those California very wines. Fitting. Yes, and um and, and I'll talk a little bit more about California wine in a little bit, but um I just wanted to make that quick interjection yeah. there. Yeah. 
So I mean, and this book is so much more the three of them than any other book is. I mean, they the the camping chapters are maligned for a reason. Yes. <laughs> but like you get the three of them and this dynamic and what makes them really awesome as a threesome and what makes them really problematic and tough as a threesome. Yeah. You really, like, build out these characters. I mean, which is amazing. You don't usually get character development in, like, the final, I mean, I don't know, in the final book of a seven-book series. Yeah, not... They develop a lot in this book. Exactly. Yeah, not not in this way. I I totally, I totally agree. And I... I, (laughs) So, yes, part of my problem with the book is that, you know, when there's that moment... Basically, when they they do the whole ministry break in yeah. and then and then come back, because I think that happens like the day after Hogwarts, like the Hogwarts Express leaves. And that's when they yeah. would have gone to Hogwarts. And so when there's when they come back from the whole ministry heist and then have to go camping because right. uh, they can't go back to Grimmauld Place anymore. That moment to me, I think, was like, wait a minute, you're yeah. not bringing me back to Hogwarts? what yeah. the fuck and i think yeah. it, it it was really hard to get over that and because the camping chapters are not the strongest um they're like so necessary they make sense from a plot yes point. but it's like it's like the first half of, of book five also where like harry is just yeah. screaming at everyone all the time like Ex- they had yeah. to happen they make total sense but they're god they're painful to breathe through they really are, and and I don't know if you agree, Sarah, but I feel like, it, especially in rereading this, I felt like this was very much uh, J.K.'s homage to Lord of the Rings. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't know if it was intentional or not, but yeah. this is the one where it becomes where, where suddenly there is a quest, which yeah. is a, a typical fantasy trope that you don't necessarily get in the other books like yeah. in a in a physical way like they're 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 traveling yeah which that is very much a fantasy trope not necessarily yeah. started by well, of course kiki is less <laughs> good at being quiet in the studio she's like oh my gosh look at all these things i can rub on look at all these wires i can what play you doing, with Nana? yeah <laughs> what's going on what's going on help? hey hey i'm helping uh, <laughs> But yes, so there's uh, like a like a physical traveling quest, which is obviously made most famous by Lord of the Rings, but yeah. is not unique to and necessarily begun by that. But right, to right. me, the thing that really is the homage to Lord of the Rings is the locket, um, yeah. the Horcrux, because yeah. and and in many ways, like Horcruxes are very much like the ring in mm-hmm. in Lord of the Rings. It's this idea of Im- soul. Yeah, imbuing an object with your soul. Yeah. Voldemort yeah. just took it to the next level. So here's my here's my biggest problem with this book, I think, yeah. in currently in my life. Um, is <laughs> Which that is, it's a large part, I can tell, of your life. Yeah, it it is. It is big it bothers me at night most nights. Yeah. Being, now that I'm thirty <laughs> yeah. I worry well, about right. Harry Potter constantly. But so what what bothers me is what feels a little I don't know if messy is the right word but like in 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 a series where the storytelling is often so tight mm-hmm. and she finds a way to bring in things that were introduced very early on mm-hmm. um you know like like I I love that the the diary in book 2 right becomes very crucial right. to the ultimate story 
Um, and I don't know if she planned that at you know while she was writing book two or not, but I think the way that yeah. she brought it in was really great. Yeah. What bothers me with book seven is that, I mean, it is called Harry Potter and the Deathly Hollows, and we have heard nothing right. about the Deathly Hollows until this book. That annoyed me so much when I, like, when I got it. But that was always true. But yeah. They, they weren't so impactful. But it was, like, always, like, there was something in the title that we'd never heard of before. That's true. That's true. But with this one, I was like, how can there be something new? Like, there's already all this other stuff we have to deal with to finish this book. There can't be something new. <laughs> right. And yeah. I guess the thing the thing that bothers me is it, it's not necessarily, it doesn't bother me necessarily that we never heard of the Deathly Hollows before this yeah. book. What bothers me is that, you know, so the Deathly Hollows are the Invisibility Cloak, the yeah. Ring of Resurrection, and the Elder Wand. Yeah. And... The invisibility cloak we've had since book one. And I think it just would have been very cool if we had seen the resurrection stone and the elder wand or or like gotten hints of that those might be important because obviously it's Dumbledore's wand. Right, right. right. But but there's nothing to say that it's special. Right. Um, there's also, again, because I read them backwards, I was yeah. really looking for this stuff. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in the earlier books, even as close as, I think, book, yeah, book four, mm-hmm. there's talk of invisibility cloaks being really common. Huh. And, like, not, or not sorry, not common, but still rare, m- but being around. Like, Mad-Eye Moody has an invisibility cloak. Uh-huh. That he, that's important because interesting he, uh, uses it. It's a it's actually like a critical plot point in the fourth book. Mm. And so their explanation, like JK gives an explanation for this. She says, like, uh, you know, I think um, someone asks Harry to think about. I can't remember who it is, but like, have you? Yes, yes, you've heard of invisibility cloaks, but like, have you ever heard of one that's as good as the one that you have? But it yeah. doesn't really like. There's nothing in the previous books and like when when harry first gets the invisibility cloak in book one mm-hmm. ron says oh i've heard of those they're extremely rare and really valuable right um it's it's not like oh i've heard of those but i've never actually like known that they existed you know it's right it, it feels like there's a disconnect there i'm nitpicking but like that i totally no. agree. i i i think that i think that these are valid criticisms because i think that like the way that she brings in the horcruxes is a little bit more interesting and tied right. into the world more. Right. Even if even if we haven't necessarily seen all of these items before, yeah. like the way she introduces what they are makes sense. Yeah, um, and it builds up over the last two books too. It even builds up. I mean, you get a you get a sense that he that Harry and Voldemort are connected from yeah. book two. I mean, yeah. from book one, really, like you, yeah. that, that those threads are, are laid throughout. I told, yeah, I totally agree. She set that up so nicely. Absolutely. Yeah. And the whole, yeah, the whole denouement of Harry being the final Horcrux, like right. that I think is beautiful and brilliant. Yeah. But, but the, the Deathly Hollows just feels a little, it, it feels a little lazy, I think yeah, like is what it is. Yeah. I think that that's, that's what it is more than messy or sloppy. It's just like, right. In in a in a series where there's so many things where she, even if she didn't intend it initially, but she pulls from, you know, like like for example, the diadem of Ravenclaw, like right. that's something that she mentions in book five or six. I forget yeah. which one, Harry but just sees like it in book six. Uh, yeah, in book six when he goes to hide yeah. the book. 
and it's just a, a sentence and you wouldn't yeah. have any idea. A dusty old tiara. Yep. Yeah. And I know that that bothers some people, but I think that that's cool. Oh, I, you know, I love that. I love yeah. that. And I just wish you could have done something like right. that with the Deathly Hollows and like gone back and found right found something that she, some morsel that she had written and been like, okay, I'm going to take this morsel and make it a cookie. Um, but So I have, t- I have two thoughts on this. And one is like a further nitpick that was really bothering me when I read this through like, this last time. And yeah. one is a like, well, she might have had a little bit more intention. So anyway, so the first one is that this book makes me not understand wand lore at all. Yes. Because if Expelliarmus mm-hmm. can officially rest ownership of a wand right or like or it or mean mastery of that person such Mm -hmm. that harry becomes the master of the elder wand yeah then how expelliarmus has been used so many times it was like the first spell we learned in the harry potter world like how has that not caused i mean and you can you could argue that there's intent behind it but that like really confused me and it didn't feel like there was an answer it's it's a very kind of convoluted or like such a specific piece of the plot that it does feel yeah. like no it bothers me too because yeah. because also it's like okay so Draco disarmed Dumbledore in book six right. but right. didn't take the wand right. and but I guess technically the wand belongs to him but so Harry disarms Draco with Draco's wand right and that makes him the the master right. of the elder wand that it, right it doesn't it doesn't quite make sense and yeah. and it's like it's like a specificity that doesn't feel totally earned i don't know right which which again because the deathly hollows came in so late it the result is making it feel like it was sort of contrived um, yes. to to make it work and it almost works on first glance but it doesn't quite yeah but and i bring this point up because you, like me, studied theater in college. Yes, indeed. And you, like me, in particular, loved Greek theater. Yes, um, indeed. I want to talk about the epitaph. Yes! I was hoping you'd bring, it, bring this up, because I <laughs> also... Flipping, you can probably hear the pages of my book. I'm flipping through to find it, because I, like, the, you started off this episode talking about how this book really just, like, hits you with how different it is. Yeah. There, there is so little exposition in the first three or four chapters of this book as compared particularly to like the first second and third books where you have to relearn who harry is oh yeah oh yeah like even from the jacket cover on the on the like the cover of the book that yeah that came out it just says now we now present the seventh and final installment in the epic tale of harry potter like yeah there's no if you've gotten this far you've read the other six books yeah yeah Like, it just starts, and it just goes right into the drama, and I think that the epitaphs really feed into that, because yes. she doesn't do these in any other books. I um, don't think so. I don't think she does. I'm I'm nearly positive that she that she doesn't, and, and that, like, she, that she puts them in here, and that they're really adult texts. They're not, they're not, like, you know, she's got, she's got the beautiful, like, dedication, which is, you know, to you who've stuck with Harry until the very end, but these feel like they're right. just a, such a different tone. There's nothing sentimental, or there's... There's nothing, like, childish or sentimental about these. Agreed. But in particular, the first one from the Libation Bearers, Aeschylus, yes. as, as bringing, bringing us back to the Greek theater. Yes. Um, there, uh, she said that, 
I found a quote from her when I was running the book club that yeah. said that she was she had found that um, epitaph when that that section when she was writing the second book, and mm. she she had sort of pinned it and mm. said, if I can bring the story such to a place such that this works, then yeah. I've done my job. Wow. And this to me feels like it calls to mind the the Deathly Hollows more so than the Horcruxes. I feel like yeah. we're talking about Hollows versus Horcruxes. Yeah. This feels I mean it's all about death and it's like about death that what what can actually conquer death in the end and it's you know children kind of <laughs> in, yeah in, in in this reading. Anyway, but so it feels like maybe there was a little bit of intention there that there was this other that she had in mind that there was this other way to beat Voldemort or like yeah. that or this other sort of power that existed in this in the world. Okay, before we continue this scintillating conversation, let me take a moment to talk to you about our sponsor for this week, Wink. So I have now had my Wink subscription for almost six months, and I have to say that I am still loving it because they keep changing up what wines are available. I've grown to develop a few favorites that I'll order because I want them around, but I love being able to try new wines. And what I love most is that they're not your typical run-of-the-mill wines. These wines are unique, made by winemakers who care about the quality of their product and for the purpose of helping you learn and develop your palate, which is exactly our philosophy here at Pairing. Better yet, there's no obligations or fees. You can cancel or skip shipments at any time, or get more if you want, and you will only ever get charged for what you order. Also, I think I mentioned this before, but they also have recommended recipes to go along with each wine, so making dinner is a cinch, because for me, the hardest part is always deciding what to eat. Their palate quiz is super easy to take, and if you don't like the look of your results, you can switch them out, no sweat. Also, since you are a pairing listener, and I love you, if you're thinking about trying it out, shoot me an email at pairingpodcast at gmail.com, and I'll be happy to recommend some of my favorites or some Wink wines that I think you'll love. But even better than my advice, right now, Wink is offering our listeners $20 off your first order when you go to trywink.com slash pairing. And it keeps getting better and better. I know you all hate paying for shipping, so Wink will actually pay for your shipping on orders of four bottles or more. So just take something off your to-do list. You're busy. Go to trywink.com slash pairing to get $20 off your first order now. That's T-R-Y-W-I-N-C dot com slash pairing. And now, back to the show. No, I think you're, you're absolutely right. And what is ultimately really beautiful about the Harry Potter series, I mean, there's so much, there's so much in, in here. But I do think that this epitaph really does kind of reflect the heart of what harry potter is and 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 it's facing death and it's facing darkness and but the the cure is the children and and god what a what a message that rings through time right now oh (laughs) my god i i really you, I just like think about all the ways that this book, in particular, the last few books in this series, have are just like have really um, terrifying parallels to our current situations, and like that is just another one. Absolutely, and that was really thrown into sharp relief 
for me in in rereading the ministry chapters and mm. our eternal evil foe Umbridge, who in in the whole Muggle what is it the Muggle like watch society yeah or, I forget yeah what it's, it's, they're they're printing those pamphlets. Yeah, um, the Muggle-born Registration Commission. Registration, yeah. And yeah. and that was something when I read this, you know, yeah, what twelve years ago, oh God, yeah. or when it, or whenever it came out, fourteen years ago. Mm-hmm. Geez, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, that when it came out, I was like, oh, I see the connection, or maybe I didn't even see it as, a, as when I read it, but like, yeah, obviously this is a connection to like Nazi Germany and right. like right. the Holocaust. But yeah. now I'm like, oh no, this is happening right now, or or it's you know it's well it it is it is happening in many parts of the world and in parts of this country, um, and it is there is the huge threat that this will become like our reality. And if we don't stand up and fight. And right now we've got like Greta Thunberg and all of these amazing children standing up and vocalizing things that adults are not doing. It's the parallels are a little eerie. <laughs> yes, there are, there are so many parallels. And, and for me, I remember actually I was. I was 16 when this book came out, um, and I lived a very sheltered life growing up in very white Vermont. <laughs> as, as did I, as did I. And, and I really was shocked at the ministry employees, like, not um, mm. recognizing that what they were doing was wrong mm, or, like, rebelling mm-hmm. sooner against Voldemort. I was yeah. shocked that they were, like, complicit in all of this stuff. And it, it almost felt like a plot hole to me. Like, I just didn't mm. appreciate that there... W- I didn't appreciate the historical repetition that she was that she was showing or th- how someone could actually do that in this situation. And rereading it again now, it was, like, so stark that, yeah. that you know, these people either are in jobs that they can't just walk out of or they really do believe that they're doing the right thing, that there is doubt in their minds based on what they've heard from their families or their friends and and having that sort of thrown into sharp contrast like how much she actually captured like living in a fascist state yeah really stark for me this time absolutely no and I think that yeah that that's what it, it feels it feels so prescient or prescient mm-hmm. right now mm-hmm. you know like it feels so realistic in a way that it didn't feel to me when I read it you know, intellectually, I was like, yes, I understand that this is a thing that has happened in other right. societies, but it would never happen here. Right. It could never it, happen it here. It could never happen here. Yeah. And this is the world we're living in now where, yeah. you know, like, I, we are this close from yeah. that happening. In... And it's, but it's so much less obvious. And, and yes. that's what, like, re- again, really struck home with this book was that, Voldemort is the only truly evil character mm-hmm. in this entire mm-hmm. book. But right. the scariest character is is Umbridge because Absolutely. she has so much power and truly believes that she's doing the right thing. And is because we have the benefit of seeing the whole story, we know that she's evil, but she yeah. doesn't know that. And it yeah. and that's what's so scary. Like she really believes that she's right and yes. she's in a position of power and can enact her agenda. 
yes, what is scary about Umbridge is that she believes what she I think that's a really good way to put it. She believes that what she's doing is best for everyone or right. or or if not everyone then it is best for society as a whole, which right. is very very like the parallels between like white supremacists and fundamentalists yeah. like that is really obvious. You know, like yeah. most of these people are not like I'm just evil and I just want to kill people. They're like, no, I think that this is like I have been taught and I believe that this is what is best for the world. Whereas whereas Voldemort is, you know, the the closest parallel that I can draw with Voldemort to our current society is like a serial killer um, who who is a, a sociopath or a psychopath who is charismatic and can draw people in Mm -hmm. to his way of thinking but obviously he's just selfish and he never really makes any pretenses that he's anything but selfish right you know right right. and and it it struck me that like this this book i mean we've talked about how like they're they're grown up in this book and this this conversation actually is like exactly that like when i was 16 i hadn't really like grown up in that way quite yet and mm-hmm. having grown up now, like it's it's she captures how you learn about the world, like how you yes. learn that people are complicated and that there isn't just good and evil and that it's it's not just like a, a straightforward decision. You learn that people have multiple sides and that there's not just like a clear right and wrong. And you just sort of have to make your way through and try to do the best you can. Exactly. And that actually that actually brings me to something that I wanted to talk about, um, which I think is a really interesting part of this book, which is Lupin and Mm. Lupin in that earlier chapter where he comes and tries to get, you know, this is ostensibly a man in his, in the books, like should be like late thirties asking three teenagers to take him with them on a quest that he knows nothing about, like taking him away from his wife and unborn child. Yeah. And in, in that chapter, you know, Harry's pretty fucking harsh to him, which right. what is really beautiful and actually really like mature of Harry to say is after after Lupin leaves, after he's yelled at him for being a coward, is he says like, hey, as long as it gets him back to his family, right. then that's what I needed to do. And right. that is such a mature thing to say, you know. Right for a 17 year old yeah i would never i would never have done anything like that when i was 17 and to someone that you look up to like lupin yeah lupin was someone that he i mean uh, uh, one of the father figures that harry collected and yeah probably the best (laughs) yeah right who was actually a good influence until that point like yeah really one of the least complicated ones other you know aside from the whole werewolf thing but like until that point and I mean, and and that then brings us to Dumbledore. Like the biggest reveal of this book is Dumbledore's complicated yeah, past, yes. and how Dumbledore, who is like the paradigm, you know, held up against Voldemort the whole series, suddenly is revealed. Right. Like, no, actually, he's pretty complicated too, and Absolutely. and is like definitely not just good. And I think that, and I think that, um, that is the best one. One of the best parts of this book, and is really a triumph of jk rowling expressing like how complicated a, like people can be yeah and, and yes dumbledore is still you know one of the greatest wizards if not the greatest wizard that ever lived 
But what I love and I love that we get in this book is like he died pretty much because of his own pride. And right. and we and we understand because, you know, in the sixth book, it's like what happened to his right. hand, you know, right. what could happen to Dumbledore yeah. that would yeah. hurt him like that? And we get it in this book, in the Snape flashback chapter, which I also think I, I do want to talk about Snape before oh, we, yeah, we got it. We got to talk about Snape. There's a lot to talk about there. <laughs> There's a lot to talk about in this book. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so. Um, yeah, no, his own pride brings him down. And yeah. and it, it makes sense in the rest of his narrative as you learn that he's like always had this kind of selfishness about him. Which, by yeah. the way, is, like, the trait that defines Gryffindor. It's, like, there's bravery, but there's also just selfishness. Yeah. And so, like, it's it's very keeping. It's very in, in keeping with the rest of the story. And But, like, he's been kind of selfish the whole time. Um, and mm-hmm. she does a really nice way of wrapping that up, you know, in a in a way that, like, gives you the, the plot that you need. But also, again, like, makes this character into a more real person. Absolutely, because he he isn't until really until the sixth book. I feel like you start getting glimpses of Dumbledore's humanity and like yeah. his flaws in yeah. the sixth book, but but you don't really understand it because you don't understand the context right, in the sixth right. book. And the seventh book gives you the context to be like, oh, okay, this yeah. this guy that we idolized didn't like was not perfect at all and you know like this this child who he mentored and but also like treated really badly (laughs) at many times for for like six years like basically I I think Snape says even like raised him like a pig to the slaughter right and um and I'm curious to hear what you think about if if Dumbledore knew or suspected, because he obviously suspected mm-hmm. that Harry was going to uh, that that Harry was this last Horcrux, right? My question is, did he also because he's very specific and says that Voldemort has to be the one to kill him? Did right. he also suspect that if that was the case, that Harry might survive? I think he did. I actually, I think he, I think he says that to Harry at the end when, and when they're at King's Cross. At King's Cross. Yeah. I think he like, I think he goes so far as to say, I guessed, um, Mm. and, and something like, I guessed, and my guesses are usually good. Of course. In classic Dumbledore fashion. Of course, because he's Dumbledore. (laughs) Like, even in the moment where he's potentially the most selfless he's ever been, he's still Dumbledore. (laughs) Yeah, of course. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, and you knew this, and you knew this all along. Is what Harry asked him. He says, "I guess, but my guesses have usually been good." Yes. Okay. Well, I think there's a there's a lot to unpack there, but this also makes me think of something connected to the wine world. Yes. And make that segue. I'm gonna make that segue, and I'm not sure because there's a few last things I wanted to talk about about California wine. There's so much to mm-hmm. talk about, but I just wanted to touch on the last few things, um, both because they're thematically connected to Harry Potter, potentially, and just because yes. I, I always like to recommend things. But so um, so the kind of king of Napa wine is or was this guy, Robert Mondavi. Mm-hmm. And, 
and in talking about Dumbledore, I'm I'm kind of feeling more and more that Mondavi is very Dumbledore because hmm. he gets a lot of flack and a lot of criticism nowadays. He is he is dead now. But he gets a lot of flack for basically the commercialization of California wines. But at the same time, he's the one who made Napa what it is, kind of, or is one of the ones who made Napa what it is. Mm-hmm. But he clearly was self-involved and and like it's ended like a up big making name for himself. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and well, I don't think that's necessarily like of a perfect connection to Dumbledore. Mm-hmm. I, I do see that kind of relation, that, that relationship. And I think at one point, you know, Robert Mondavi was viewed as just like this amazing person in the wine world. And now mm-hmm. kind of in hit, like in historical hindsight, people are like, eh, like he yeah. kind of, you know, like, yeah, sure. He did a lot, but he also did a lot to kind of things. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and yeah. No, that's, I think that's a good parallel. Yeah, I think that's a I think that's a good parallel. Um, and I also wanted to mention so the the so Mondavi uh, you can find Mondavi wines like everywhere, and they're one of the biggest estates in Napa. But the one that he's most famous for is this wine called Opus One, which is one I of the most. That. I haven't. <laughs> it's, I think uh, I have. Maybe. Maybe I, we should cut that out. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think I, I. I've at least tasted it. I think it's. It's entirely possible. I mean, especially if you've been to Napa, like I'm sure you can taste it. It is a very expensive bottle of wine. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, but it is. It's supposed to be supposed to be great, but also <laughs> has again this connotation of like. Oh yeah, it's Opus One. Like it's kind of like right. a status thing more than right. anything else. Maybe I've just heard of it. <laughs> it's it's possible. It's possible. Hey, um, but but I also thought that Opus One is kind of a nice wine for Harry Potter because it's like the chosen her gra- one, her great Opus, yeah, and the yeah. chosen one. Yeah. Um, the other big estate in Napa that I wanted to mention is one called Dominus. And Dominus also has kind of this reputation. And Dominus means, I believe, master in mm-hmm. Latin. And so I think that that is also an appropriate one for yeah. Harry Potter, um, either for either for Voldemort, who thinks he's the master of everything, yeah. or Harry, who does kind of become the master of death. And totally. Yeah, but but you know, and that, he's the perfect master of death because he doesn't he accepts it, right, right. Um, and then uh, I also wanted to mention Stag's Leap, which is another mm-hmm. one of the the it's it's both a district within Napa and a winery, mm-hmm. and obviously it's uh perfect because uh you know Harry's Patronus is a stag yeah. and Stag Leap's obviously Stag's yeah, Leap right is going to be. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> and I also, I wanted to recommend one that's actually kind of affordable from Napa, <laughs> which I also feel like is thematically appropriate because these are wines like Stag's Leap can be anywhere from, depending on which level, like from like 50 to a few hundred dollars. Dominus yeah. and, and Opus One are like hundreds and hundreds of dollars Goodness. a bottle. I probably which haven't is... drunk Opus One. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hey, it is possible. It is definitely possible. But that's the thing. I mean, I haven't tasted it, so I don't know. Yeah. But uh, but that's my problem with a lot of 
California wine and and that's it's not unique to California, but you right. kind of get the name, you get the prestige, and so you can charge more money for it. Right. While right. there are wines that are much less expensive that I think are just as good, if not better. Right. right. Um, but there you go. But there is this <laughs> one. There's this one Napa cab called Kith and Kin from mm. a, an estate called Round Pond. And the nice. Kith and Kin is like 30-ish dollars a bottle, mm-hmm. which for a Napa cab is like very, very reasonable. Mm-hmm. And it's very good. And I feel like Kith and Kin is perfect to talk about Harry Potter because it's all yeah. about your family and... And your friends, so right, and yeah, and, and all yeah, kin, all the types of family that people have. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, nice. and then I just wanted to give a shout out to a couple other, both places and grapes in California that are important. Um, Zinfandel is a big deal in California, and similar to Merlot, there's really good Zin and there's really bad Zin. Yeah. You know, it's it's hard to tell which is going to be which, but there you go. Well, I'll give I'll give a couple of rep- recommendations. My favorite my favorite producer for Zinfandel is a winery called Bedrock, and then there's also a company called Ridge, which is most famous for Zinfandel, and they make very nice. good Zinfandel. There's Chardonnay, of course, which uh, California Chardonnay we con- we fondly refer to as Cougar Juice here on <laughs> <laughs> here on pairing the super oaky buttery Chardonnay. But there's yeah. a lot of California Chardonnay that isn't like that, also, um, or that is really well made uh, as well. Nice. And so it it uh, it would be wrong of me to not mention Chardonnay. <laughs> and then. There's uh, a couple other regions that I just wanted to mention. Paso Robles, further south. Um, if you like Napa Cab but don't want to spend that much money, there's a lot of great cab coming from Paso Robles. Nice. Um, I love Santa Barbara and Santa Rita Hills, so kind of more central coast wines. Mm-hmm. They're a little more understated, um, a little, a little, like, you know, great Pinot Noirs coming out of there as well, Chardonnays, Grenache, stuff like that. Um, a little more unusual. Like the the winemakers in the Central Coast are kind of like messing around a little more. They're like the Xenophilius love goods of the. <laughs> <laughs> I brought it back. I brought it back. <laughs> those are the quibbler wines. <laughs> yes, those are the quibbler, quibbler wines. Ah, poor Xenophilius. Oh, he gets a bad rap in this book too. He sure does. And like, can you can you entirely blame him? No, he's protecting no. Luna. Yeah, my Luna, my Luna. <laughs> I love how he says that. Oh, oh that <laughs> poor poor man. Ugh. So I did want to talk about Snape. So okay, so I'm going to be perfectly honest. I have not gotten to the Snape flashback chapter right. in my in my most recent reread, but yeah. I did just watch the second movie again, mm-hmm. um, which we did oh, get to Alan go see Rickman, together. R.I.P. Oh, oh. And, it, and I, I like, I started crying during that scene. Yeah. And totally. I'm not, I'm not sure if it was just because it was Alan Rickman right, right. or because they, they did it better in the movie than it is in the yeah. book or, or, or if I, I don't remember the book. I mean, the thing about Snape, objectively, he is not a good person. <laughs> right, right. Or 
I think it's again bringing in the moral ambiguity and, right. and how how complicated the concept of being good or being right. bad. He's not is. entirely bad, but he does a lot of bad things. Yes, he does a lot of cruel things. Right. I think right. uh, throughout the course of the series, he is not a nice person. Yeah, and and he, uh, you know, probably ruins some kids' lives, right. but but he he's not evil. I guess right. the difference is, and he's right. he's he's not like Umbridge. Like he right. he's smarter he's, than he's that. In fact, actively fighting against the true evil in the book. So like his exactly. badness is like, yeah, he's 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 not a good teacher. <laughs> he's no. like a terrible teacher. Terrible. And that was the other thing for the record that occurred to me in this book was that it is incredible that that it's kind of widely accepted that the best wizards in this wizarding world at least in the like uk wizarding world yeah. are uh teachers like yeah. the, the 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 teachers i mean dumbledore leads it of course and he explains that it's because he didn't want the power but then he brought people with him and like that is where like the best wizards go to fight yeah. like that's where the ultimate fight's going to happen and that's where they can like put up the best defense because that's where they're, like they're not at the ministry they're at the school and that is a right. cool thing that like the best wizards in the in the world go become teachers but that anyway, is like sorry no, no that is so cool and, and yeah. i think that's something that we should strive for a little bit more i mean to be clear the best people in the world right now are teachers in a lot of cases 100 percent. they're not as recognized as the teachers in in harry potter right absolutely but yeah i feel like snape you know like on the one hand okay so there's also this is also a plot hole that sort of bothers me which is that the whole he's in love with lily thing right and has been and that has been his motivation for being good his whole life Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. what what bothers me is that again sort of like the deathly hollows there's never really been any mention or intimation and maybe you can speak to this better having having reread the books backwards yeah but you don't really get any of that in the in the earlier books no there's there's not that being said, though, this one bothers me less because, having mm-hmm. read it backwards, I did get a better appreciation for how, for for how much, uh, Snape saw James in Harry. Yeah, yeah, Snape. You you because I read it so that I I watched the the flashback from the from the pensive. Um, yeah, the pensive. What do you how do you pronounce that? <laughs> I don't know. Pensive. I. I, 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 in my brain, I think it has always been the pensive. Yeah. Okay. Um, that's what, that's what my which, brain has But, but, too. but so, like in the movie, sometimes they call it the pensive. Sometimes yeah. they call it the pensive. Sometimes they call it the pensive. Yeah. Like, it's, yeah. it's pronounced differently every time. Well, that's, that's and, very human of them too. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. So in that, in that flashback, um, James, when, when, when James kind of tortures Snape and makes fun of him. Yeah. Um, and then going backwards from there, you really get to see like that that Harry does carry a lot of those same traits from James and does like absolutely you know if if you were bullied as a kid, like that would bring back a lot of that stuff and it would be really hard to deal with. I'm not excusing his behavior like what what causes no, him no. To, to what it causes him to do, but I where where I didn't feel like I got a sense of him loving Lily before that book, mm-hmm. I do see um 
the like why he hates Harry like so much because it's like because mm. James also took Lily from him uh, in his view right and and right. you know Harry is is like looks so much like James and is acting so much like James and so so Snape is both angry at him for acting like James and still angry at him about Lily and so so right. that aspect of it does help set the set the stage for what's coming. Um, I yeah. also do think, though, that the movies do this a little bit better than the books because, I mean, J.K. Rowling knew what was coming, so she wrote it in, but she told Alan Rickman, you you know this, that, mm. like, they, they met, and, and Alan wasn't that Alan. We're on first name basis. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> he wasn't that interested in the part because it, it just seemed like it was just an evil part, and she told him right. why he should be interested in oh. it. Oh. And, yeah. um... Oh wow. And and so that's what made him take it. So he always knew that, which I think huh. made it more real. And I think that's yeah, why he's well, such that, a good Snape. That is brilliant. Yeah. And I mean, and I didn't realize this, but actually it what I heard at least is that they shaped a lot of the casting actually around Alan Rickman playing Snape. Love it. Be, be, because I mean, so technically the the marauders era yeah uh, you know those actors shouldn't have been as old, old as the actors right, but right. as they cast but they really wanted alan rickman to play snape yeah and because he was older they kind of aged everyone up oh my i also think i also think that it makes sense kind of from a film perspective right. to see the older characters being that generation above. And, and so like, if if that's what they had to like, that doesn't really bother me. I know it bothers some people. They're like, but Sirius is supposed to be young and hot. And I'm like, Hey, Gary Oldman is hot. Like, let's get over here. Yeah. Let's be real. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But no. And I think it, it, it again sort of emphasizes that, that um, feeling that you're kind of supposed to have of like Sirius and Lupin and, and, and his parents like knowing what to do and like having yeah. it all together and being part of the order of the phoenix and that was like a thing and then them slowly realizing that like no they actually didn't know what to do and they're still young and they're still figuring it out and guess what so do you right and i think that that's something that again rereading the books <laughs> um is much more uh, is like in much more sharp relief to me mm-hmm. because now that I am closer to the age that the Marauders era would be right. rather than to Harry, I'm like, oh my god, they had to go through so much right. when they were so young. so young. Like Lily and James were were uh like 21 yeah. when they died yeah. and had already been fighting. You know, right. like were already considered. You know, like great figures of the rebellion right right and yeah and like and 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 snape and lupin and Sirius and all that like being in their basically mid to late 30s during these books while as a kid reading these books like i was like oh they're grown-ups and yeah like they're grown-ups but they're not like they're still young enough to be figuring things out Right. right and so uh i mean everybody's always figuring things out that's not uh, i know that that's a myth you know but yeah but still that's that's something to me that like is very poignant in rereading the books that that's the one thing that you miss a little bit with the with the older casting in the movie i think yeah um can i also say though what you just said made me think about this it made me sad rereading it this time that 
J.K. Rowling mm. never got rid of sorting. That, like, mm, uh-huh. in between... She had an opportunity to do it in between because she did the epilogue, whether or not that was a good choice from different different yep. opinions. Yep. Um, yep. Because she did it, she had an opportunity to show change happening at Hogwarts. Right. And you were just talking about, like, being so young and so, like, still changing and molding. And it's like... Yeah. It is so ridiculous that they got they get sorted, first of all, into yeah. into these really clearly like personality defined houses that even right. though like yeah it's great that, like they basically get to choose like there there there's a- that aspect of it so it's not like totally forced by an outside you know source of magic they mm-hmm. you don't know who you are when you're 11 and no. then to add on top of that that there's various different stigmas around the houses and like you can argue that, yeah. that Slytherin's pretty bad because people think they're evil. I think Hufflepuff's also pretty bad, and I like have considered myself a Hufflepuff for many years. But like, it's well, like Hufflepuff gets a bad rap. Hufflepuff in the books. gets a bad rap. Like there was yeah. there was a Twitter chain that was like, here's like here's how we're gonna sort up our kids: the brave ones, the smart ones, the s- cunning ones, and the other ones. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> what the heck? Like, you just kind of forgot know. about Hufflepuff. Um, I know. So, like, it's I, so bad. In reading it this time, I was like, oh, she had that perfect opportunity to say, oh, we're going to actually do something systemic. We're not just going to, like, kill this one evil person. We're not just going to, like, have, you know, modern day, have one election. We're actually going to change the right. system that led to this happening in the first place. And I, right. and I really wish she had done that in retrospect. I, I agree with you 100%. And I hadn't really thought about it, but... It it's funny because the the books start out like Sorcerer's Stone or Philosopher's Stone starts out very much as like a Roald Dahl esque children's book mm-hmm. and in that like you know kind of metaphor almost fairy tale esque way of storytelling like it makes sense that you codify these things whether it's good or not right. I'm not saying right. that it is good right. but it makes more sense in that context. But the series progressed so far and got so much more sophisticated right. that, like, I, I agree. That's that's one of the many things that she should have done, right, right. too. Um, but, you know, like, along with, you know, if you're going to make Dumbledore gay, make him gay. Right. Like, you know, like, say it. Can, right. you, no. can you imagine the impact that oh that would have had Huge. on... on Poor young queer kids yeah. reading this amazing like, book, for looking for up to models. this person. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it would have been amazing. And, it would have and, been amazing. And creature and the 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 um the house elves, like yeah, like for all of the characters, all of our key characters to realize that house elves shouldn't be enslaved or should be treated better, but still to do nothing about it to the point that I don't know if you remember this, but the last line before the epilogue, not quite the last line, but like two lines before the last yeah. line. Harry yeah. hopes that Creature might make him a sandwich. Like, he's like, well, what? at least maybe Creature <laughs> will make me a sandwich. I'm not kidding. Oh, my God. I like, oh, my God. If you go to the very end before oh my God. before the uh, epilogue, he's in the last paragraph. He says, the wand's more oh trouble God. than it's worth, said Harry. And quite honestly, he turned away from the painted portraits, thinking now only of the four-poster line, four-poster bed line waiting for him in Gryffindor Tower and wondering whether Creature might bring him a sandwich there. I've had enough trouble for a lifetime. Like, he is going to go oh lounge god. in his bedroom. Oh, my god. And oh my god. ask his house elf to bring him a sandwich. Like, after I everything. I had forgotten about that. 
I know. So there's just, oh my God. There's just so there's like so much that could have been done uh, and really wasn't. And and it's not on, it's not on J.K. Rowling to fix the problems of our society. I I'm not putting that right. on her, but it's like, oh, it was so right. close. <laughs> so close. I mean, I'd like to imagine that if she had written these books like now, like had started releasing them now, that she might be a little bit bolder mm-hmm. than she was then. Yeah. Um but yeah, I think that is my ultimate big problem with the series. Well, I feel like I've said that like several times. <laughs> but <laughs> but it is one of my biggest problems with the series is that you know, like she addresses the house elf like slavery yeah. issue. Yeah. But never, like, yeah, nothing ever comes of it. And basically everybody just, the only person who's actually championing it is Hermione. And people just make fun of her for it. And it's like a big moment in this book. Like, Ron realizing that he, that, or like, suggesting that they go free the house elves from the kitchen. And like, that's what makes them kiss. Like, that's, it's like a big moment. It's like dramatic thing. But yeah, other than that, it's kind she's kind of laughed at the whole time. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and I do actually, I love creatures storyline yeah. in this book yeah. as well yeah. and, but that oh i forgot i forgot yeah. about that last line that's so bad oh my god i know i know oh i know and it really like oh. yeah again i i anyway she it's not it, they're not perfect these books <laughs> they're not perfect these books not perfect just like just like california is not a perfect oh, wine beautiful. industry Beautiful. Beautiful. Episode <laughs> over. <laughs> uh, we're done. <laughs> oh my goodness. There's like, I mean, we could talk about we could talk about just this book oh, yeah. for hours, hours and hours and hours yeah. and hours. Yeah. But is there anything any last big thing that you wanted to touch on or anything? I, I don't think so. I think I I think yeah. I've captured most of my real strong opinions. <laughs> I have lots of minor opinions. <laughs> I, I I feel the same way. I think I've got, you know, like in every in every little chapter ooh, another pet peeve. Yeah. Is the goblins. Oh. Um and and how I and I'm not sure exactly how much of it is what's in the books versus their portrayal in the movie mm-hmm. but like it feels very anti-semitic mm-hmm. in the movie mm-hmm. like just mm-hmm. that these are these are like you know kind of jewish looking bankers who right. only care about really, being rich really greedy. yeah yeah, the, yeah i think the book does do a, a better job not even a slightly better job a, a better job than than the movies yeah. and actually that's one of the conversations like the, the conversation with grip hook in at shell cottage yeah i do think is yeah. like a good example of like them figuring out that the world's kind of complicated and that the like the lessons yeah. that they learned about who goblins were and like how they're seen in the world might not Very actually true. be true so I, I think the book ca- captures that a little bit better, and the movie kind of glosses over it. Um, but yeah. I agree; it's it's not resolved. It, it and they still yeah. they still are they never they never come back and and like pay amends to Grip yeah that, that never gets resolved. No, yeah, J.K. does a great job of. Uh, she and I are similarly on uh, yeah, it, it, on initialism. Well, well. Initial initial terms. She calls you S Z. E S Z. Yeah, she yeah. calls me E. <laughs> and I call her J K R. Yeah, obviously. Obviously. Yeah, but I do feel like she does a great job of introducing these. 
things and these problems and these biases and um, so much yeah. in in children's book in children's books in a, in a way that hadn't really been done before. Totally. In retrospect, now you know how many almost twelve twelve years later because this book was published in two thousand seven. Yep, twelve. Yeah, twelve years. Yep. Yep, 12 years. Yep. Ugh, math yeah. is hard. It happens. <laughs> but, like, 12 years later, I think, like, our society has progressed enough. Totally. And, and mainstream, you know, like, what's media and culture has progressed in a way that, like, the, the things that she's bringing up wouldn't be as big a deal now. Yeah. And were she to fully deal with them. But, but you're be... you're you're right. Like it's it's so important to recognize that like she was groundbreaking in, yes. in bringing this up, up and bringing it up in a way that like could be like understood by kids and understood Exa- as they grew yeah. up. And 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 I think yeah. that you know like it, these books were formative to me in yeah. a way that I I probably don't even understand. Yeah. And um yeah. and and that's an amazing accomplishment and i'm really grateful <laughs> that i am like of the harry potter generation oh my gosh, yeah no i i know yeah. i know more about harry potter than i know that i know <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> and i'm fine absolutely. with that <laughs> absolutely okay well on that note yeah thank you so much there... this has been a delight oh my gosh Thank you so much. This has been a delight. Um, will you, okay, just just in closing, will you give me some highlights or tidbits from the Harry Potter Book Club? Oh, my goodness. We we did Mad Libs almost every book. Um, those oh, were always delightful. If you yeah. ever, like, need uh, a Harry Potter Mad Lib, I've got seven or 12, 20. Uh, oh, my uh, God, I need them. We, we did, um, <laughs> for the fourth book, like, we did a full Triwizard Tournament. Um, I had, like, different challenges for everyone. Like, it involved eating a seaweed salad as as gillyweed and then, like, running around on a broomstick, like, a literal just broomstick and running around my friend Celestia's apartment. Um, Yeah. And then, (laughs) but then for the seventh book, it, like, I really, really went all out. And, like, I made um, Quidditch Pong. Uh, so that was like oh sort of God. our closing ceremonies. We played Quidditch Pong, yeah. but the, like I, yeah. I looked through my agendas recently, and I was like, "How did I have this much time in my life? Like, <laughs> like the time and creativity is, is like were truly astounding. Like I was like, there were quotes that we started with, there were some discussion questions, and then we'd get to like some game. I invented like uh, cards against Muggles, which my friends oh my I think God. still have in San Francisco. <laughs> And King's Cross Cup, oh like King's God. Cup, but with a with a Harry oh Potter themed deck. Like I invented oh multiple God. games <laughs> for this book club. Sarah. I really kind of wore myself out, actually. Like it was, it was yeah. incredibly draining. Um, but uh, uh, lots it, of good materials. If anyone ever wants to do this again, hit me up. <laughs> um, I I a hundred percent want to do this. So next time that we are together, yes, we'll um, play all the games. Let's play all the Harry Potter games. <laughs> I'll bring the you wine. Got it. You got it. I'll bring all the games. <laughs> Yay! Uh, well, thank you so much, Sarah. This was delightful. Oh, this was wonderful. Um, bringing bringing me back. Yeah. Bringing me back to, Seriously. <laughs> to, to to better times and to worse times. <laughs> yeah. True. True. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Yep. Dickens got nothing on me. (laughs) (laughs) ESZ. Cheers. Cheers. Clink. (laughs) Ding.
Hey there, King's Cross Emma here to tell you that not only will I make Sarah play all of these games with me when we next hang out, but you can all play them too by going to patreon.com slash pairingpodcast. The higher you pledge, the more of Sarah's games you'll have access to. I just ask that if you share them, you give her credit. And if you post your Harry Potter Mad Libs results online, please tag pairing at pairingpodcast and Sarah at the Swolf with an E, so that we can enjoy them too. Pairing was created, hosted, and produced by Emma Sherjarko, with music and audio recording by Winston Shaw, and logo artwork by Darcy Zimmerman and Katie Huey. This episode was edited by Emma Sherjarko. Follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at Pairing Podcast to keep tabs on what we're up to. And feel free to send us any thoughts, questions, requests, and pairings of your own on our website, thepairingpodcast.com, via email at pairingpodcast at gmail.com, or on any social media platform. Come check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash pairingpodcast, where you can pledge as little as $1 a month and get access to exclusive content, customized pairings from me, live streams, and more. Also, check out our merch store on our website at thepairingpodcast.com slash merch. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts and sharing with your friends. Thank you so much for listening to Pairing, where you come for the stories and stay for the wine.